How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 124. You're keeping this, like, raspy, quiet thing going on. I, I think like so. It. Maybe just a little bit. Like, a bit like... To be honest, mm. we had drinks at mine last night, Jake. Ah, uh, yes, we I had some that. very high-octane, uh, intense trivia. Um, which, <laughs> speaking of trivia... Do we want to kick this show off <laughs> with our trivia section Very based smart. on the film of the week? Yeah, so um, for the last 40 or so episodes, bar last week, we've been doing our, you know, we'll take a film from, say, episode 120. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's find a quote from a 2020 film. Ep- episode 90 was a 1990 film. Um, we'll find a quote from that film we have to, or a quote from a film from that year yes. that the other person would have to guess. Uh, now, since we sort of exhausted that, we've decided to do something else. This was your idea, Zeke, was yeah. to pull out a bit of trivia for the film of the week. So we each, I believe, we each have a bit of trivia, and uh, hopefully we don't overlap too much. No, I'm <laughs> hoping we're going to. I be didn't doing think this. of that. <laughs> let's let's start with yours, just to be safe. Okay, okay. I get. Yeah. Do you have it like on your phone? I do. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, the 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 little trivia that I pulled out for the Green Mile film of the week. Mm. Is that out of the thirty plus Stephen King adaptations from from his novels into uh, films, uh, before 2017's It, The Green Mile was the only film to have broken the 100 million dollar mark in the U.S. box office, and it is also, according to Stephen King, the quote single most faithful adaptation of his work. So he's gone in and said this film is probably his favorite adaptation or the most faithful, which I I would say he's probably correct. Very interesting. It is really interesting. Let's have a quick gaze here. Well, thankfully, we're not going to overlap. Very good. Very good. Um, speaking of this film, um, and particularly, I thought this was an interesting fact, especially given the representation of, I believe it's Mr. Jangles. Oh, the, yeah. The Mr. Jing- Jingles. Jing- Mr. Jingles. Mr. Jingles. Representation of um, Mr. Jingles. Giving, uh, not to spoil, but there'll probably be a discussion with Oh, what happens okay. to that mice? I think I know what you're going to say. There were 15 mice used in this oh. movie. Each spent months being trained to do different tricks. Ah. So, Mr. Jingles lives vicariously through not one, but 15 different mice. Interesting. I thought I did read somewhere um, how they did a certain uh, boot scene that, mm. that was actually a puppet and not a real mouse. But uh, That's nice. Yeah. And I didn't know that. 15 mice. That's interesting. 15. That's crazy. Well, alongside the trivia, there's another thing I wanted to do. There, we do have a poster right behind you, Zeke. The yes. 1,100 films. I don't have my glasses on, but it's basically 1,100 films you've got to see before you die. Um, at least one, Watch at least once in your lifetime. That's what it says. Yes. Um, I was thinking, speaking of film of the week, uh, I've actually gone ahead and looked at that poster to see if the film of the week, The Green Mile, is on that poster. Do they consider this one of the top 1,100 films to watch before you die? Do they? Well, I was going to ask, Zeke, do you think that it's on there? I believe so, yeah. It's not. What? The Green Mile is not on that poster, which I could not believe. Seeing as this was the most one-sided countdown through the uh, decades retrospective polls we've ever had. (laughs) Yes, um, it was. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this episode would not be happy with that. No, certainly not. That is at least 49 people against four that would not be happy with that at all. I agree. That is absurd that it is not on that list. That's crazy. It's certainly on my other poster, 100 films. So I don't know how it makes the top 100 in that cut, but this poster doesn't even make the top 1,000. That makes no sense to me. That's unbelievable. I, I don't get it. 
But anyway, that's why I thought I, maybe we could add this as part of our weekly game because I would not have guessed that in a thousand years. That that it that yeah. it wasn't on the poster. So well, I'll take a safe bet that the film we're doing next week on the show is probably going to be on that list. But we can. <laughs> well, you save never it. know. Based on could this. save that till next week. But <laughs> right now we're talking about the films we watched this week. Jake, mm. have you caught anything in the last week? Um, I've had a weird week actually. Looking at this, I mean, I've had a, such a busy week, so mm. I've sort of catch dribs and drabs of whatever. I want to give a quick shout out to the Last Night in Soho trailer, the new Edgar Wright film Ooh, that drops. Yes. That I is, haven't watched it. That is probably one of my favorite trailers in years. Really, this trailer is so good. I cannot wait. I'm going to watch still. the film. So why would I watch the trailer? Fair enough. This is my my. I stand by this. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Enough. But but when when we do watch, we we definitely will do this film on the podcast. Uh, I think in October is when it comes out. I think a lot of stuff's coming in October now. You got this. Um, you got Dune. I think is October now. French Dispatch. There's a lot of stuff coming in October. Oh, I'm very excited for French Dispatch. Oh, it's going to be very good. But um, I just want to give a shout out. That trailer is incredible. Uh, one of the other things I did rewatch this past week. A little shout out to Black Mirror's uh, Smithereens, mm-hmm. which is the second and middle episode of the of Black Mirror's fifth season. Now, I don't recall your stance on this. I remember being in the minority liking the fifth season of Black Mirror. I remember a lot of people not liking it. I've never seen Black Mirror. At all? At all. What? You haven't even watched Bandersnatch? Oh, yeah. Uh, excuse me. I okay. have watched Bandersnatch. Okay. I have not seen insane. any of the quote-unquote seasons, though. Interesting. Okay. Well, I remember a lot of people not liking season five so much, which it's interesting because I rewatched Smithereens, and mm-hmm. um, I really, I still like a lot of what this episode does, where it's, it's a very straightforward thing about a, a gunman and his hostage and sort of letting that event play out of... Yeah. of Oh, why does he want to speak to the CEO of this company? Why is he holding this guy hostage? And it sort of unravels from there. And I've always liked those kinds of Black Mirror episodes. So the very first one with um, uh, the Prime Minister having to have sex with the pig. Like That's a very similar... I've heard of them. Like, these yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, but... That's a very similar structure in that it just like covers every opinion on that scenario and it's like oh how does the public react to it? How does the media? media yeah. How does the, uh, the, the... Not the military force but you know like what what does the government do in response? Or like all of these aspects, I love those kind of episodes. But it was interesting rewatching this one and being like, this tackles so much and says so little. Like within okay. Smithereens alone, it tackles grief, addiction, technology, information, and it kind of ends with it all being about passiveness. Is that people sort of forget about events like this in a flash because you know their addiction to the phone or whatever. Um, and I was like, why? Why does it have all of these things to say? And nothing really... Uh, I don't know. It was, it was just weird. And I actually found out... I actually have given this a grade in the past. I gave it a three-star review. Okay. Which actually... That's fair. I think I, I stand by that. I think that's fair enough. Because it's still... I like the production. And I like the script. In terms of the actual beat-for-beat beat plot. In terms of what literally happens. Right. But in terms of all the things it's trying to cover thematically. I was like, man, this is kind of messy. And it feels I've a lot of people I think feel very like we've seen this before. Phones are bad. We get it. So yeah, it was just interesting. Phones I are to, indeed bad. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, say that I've seen that. And the only other thing I want to talk about that I've seen in the last week is I finally finished the U.S. version of The Office. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Which you finished not too long ago. You watched yeah, it all at in the much... start of the year. I think is yeah. pretty, pretty accurate. Okay. Yeah. And it was a much shorter time than I did because the whole thing was I was watching it 
with my mum and my sister. It would be like an every Friday or Sunday night thing. So it took us 14 months to do it because all our schedules had to align mm-hmm. to sit down and watch 202 episodes of this show. Um, so it's crazy when you say that. Yeah. Well, I think it was the start of COVID. I think that's when roughly when we finally started watching it is because we were in lockdown. Um, so yeah, it has been a while. And overall, like I think the show, I've, we've talked about it a lot. I, mean, I think the show is great. I think it's hilarious. I do think it ends on a really weird note. It's a very odd finale. There's a lot of just weirdness in how much feels kind of rushed. Things happen in certain orders. Uh, just It's very strange. I don't want to get into it too much because this isn't an office spoiler cast mm. or anything like that. I just wanted to mention that I have finished it and I actually started watching the UK version just to compare and contrast. And um, What do you think? It's interesting. So I've only seen a couple of episodes of the UK version. It, these first couple of episodes are pretty identical. Like the pilots <laughs> yeah, are almost... Yeah, that was like one of the biggest critiques of the show. Uh, the mm. American one was how much similar wise it was yeah like a lot of the dialogue's identical um the whole put the stapler in the jelly like that's almost beat for beat exactly the same scene which you know i know i'm watching it the wrong way around which is weird for my brain to process but like you know props to the uk version props to Stephen merchant and, mm. and ricky gervais for like creating such a strong foundation for what the u.s show would be because in terms of the way it's shot the mockumentary style, the camera. But I think the success for the American show only came when it started to differentiate itself. Uh, It definitely was received better and became more popular Mm -hmm. from that. But that being said, like they never changed the way that the characters behave. Like it's a little, you know, Steve Carell's a little softer after the first season, a little bit. And, and like his hairline's a little neater, you know, they kind of get rid of the dryness that the UK version really dedicates itself to. Like, that first season of The Office, the US version, is so much more grey and sort of looks a little rougher than the rest of the series does. And the UK yeah. version relishes in how rough it looks. Everything's grey. The Office iconography looks more bland and boring. Even the the people, you know, not to sound rude, but mm. they all look way more bland than the versions of the US Office. Yeah. They just sort of like meld into their background more. Um, so if you're into that and you know, I absolutely appreciate that. I do have that softness of, I've spent so much time with the U S characters that I watched the UK version. I'm like, oh, I kind of just want to watch the Jim and Pam dynamic and stuff. Like I want to go back to that. I understand there's a, there's a, a softness is the best way of describing it. Yeah. Warm, soft. Exactly. Feeling. So I'm not going to lie and say that I'm like completely into this UK version, but I totally get why people like it more. Some people do. Yeah. Because it commits to that dryness more. And if people find that funnier, then they're going to find that show funny. And it makes sense. And I want to say, Ricky Gervais, shockingly unbearable. <laughs> you don't like Ricky Gervais? No. Well, okay. He, and I'll clarify this with Ricky Gervais. I like him when he's on stage at the Golden Globes making jokes in front of actors and mm. directors and stuff. That's funny. But when he sits down to write something, and, and the more I've been reading, the more I've realized that Stephen Merchant has sort of been like the quiet guardian angel that has sort of helped him through the early stuff of their career when they did stuff together um because i absolutely loathe afterlife i think it's a crap show um i i hate it so much too (laughs) it's so bad but um i will say i think the reason i think he's bearable in the show is because like michael scott he's trying to be likable he's trying to be positive and optimistic Mm -hmm. and like kind to people in the fact that he might be rewarded with kindness and likability back as opposed to usually the kind of character that Ricky Gervais plays which is a narcissistic cynical asshole 
and I just can't stand it because he writes it in such a way that I'm like, I want to punch myself. <laughs> and <laughs> there's something about the way he plays like the Michael Scott version in the UK version that I'm like, okay, this is actually, I like this a lot. I do like this a lot. So a lot of props to the UK version and uh, I'll finish it over the next week and maybe update my thoughts next week. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, that's been my weird week of rewatches and wrap-ups. <laughs> just so, so to speak. Well, you know what? I mean, that's... that's um, I'm really glad you finally got to finish it. Yeah, um, I, re- I got some more shows I need to get to now, so it's a good thing to tick off the, the old I've box. just been combing through How I Met Your Mother again. Um, yeah. We actually had a really big debate about the Friends reunion thing the other day because Ooh, it's got nothing to do with... Like, it's not really... It's them basically sitting down and chatting about the show, so... Although I, I have not even gone past the first season of Friends, and that's sort of on my blacklist. Mm, okay. But um, I've actually caught a couple of films. I, ca- I caught a lot of more films at the start of the week than I have in the last couple of days. Mm. I find, the, you know, obviously being on prac right now, it's like start of the week I feel like I had a lot of energy. By the end of the week I'm like, go home and it's just like straight to falling asleep. Right. But, um, I did catch quite a few um, newer films this week. Um, let me just get the old. A couple of get pleasant, su- a couple of pleasant surprises. A couple of incredible disappointments. Um, okay. So we're going to touch on. Uh, first off, we'll, we'll kick off with uh, a 2019 film, a Scottish sort of indie film, Calibre. And this is kind of a psychological thriller. It involves two. Uh, men, one of them has just found out he's going to be a dad soon and they go on a hunting trip up north in like the more rural parts of Scotland, mm. you know, pretty par for the course sort of stuff. And we, without diving too, I will dive into spoilers. So this is going to be a spoiler review. Oh, okay. Um, a event transpires in which, uh, it sort of sends them into a downward spiral. Basically on this hunting trip, they end up accidentally killing a child Oh, oh my. Um, and that leads to sort of a trying to cover it up over the course of the next two, three days in this town. Right. Um, and it's a very tight-knit community, and it's sort of the psychological torment that these two characters find themselves in. And I, it loses pace in the last 20 to 25 minutes, like quite detrimental to the, the film. I was mm. quite very pro it in probably the first half. It was the second half that really kind of let me down a little bit, I think. Okay characters started making irrational decisions or there were plot conveniences that kept them in the town and um whereas the first half of the script was very tight so pretty solid film um honestly it was obviously you're impressed when you kind of come across a film that you've never heard of before and you still enjoy it well enough um is this um netflix yes yeah so this is the only feature directed and written by matt palmer so yeah Good, good debut. Solid, it sounds solid, like solid start. Cool. The other real pleasant surprise was actually Michael Matthews' *Love and Monsters*. Oh, now, interesting. This was nominated for effects, I think. Okay, which is cool because I think I think Australians did the effects in this cool. film. This was um, I don't know what the best way to describe it. This film is probably akin to stuff that falls in the uh, Maze Runner. Hunger Games, teen sort of uh, fantasy adventure mm. plotline. And 
obviously, you know, with Dylan O'Brien being the central character of the Maze Runner franchise, uh, okay, um, there now. was definite parallels. He is vastly more likable in this film than he was in all of those films. I think he's very plain, boring, and dry in those Maze Runner films. Right. I think the first one gets a gets a tick of approval because of the ensemble cast is relatively strong in that and it's a tight 90 but the second film i haven't even got to the third maze runner film i haven't seen any of them um second one's bloated and a mess um so i had no motivation of watching the third one i'm sure i will eventually but this was a really good performance by him um the best way of describing this was it was kind of I mean, the premise of the film is uh, there's an asteroid coming towards uh, the Earth and humans unite. They fire a bunch of nukes at the asteroid, mm. but the side effects of all the chemicals coming down from the nukes uh, mutates all of the insects and the small amphibian creatures into giant mm. monsters. So. I think, does it open, this is all like kind of a cartoony aesthetic that they introduce us yeah, with yeah because i might Dil have seen that scene Dil yeah i think uh, i think it's in the preview dylan's character dylan o'brien's character is a avid drawer and he's actually okay. creating a, a book and so this film is very much takes place seven years after the um the event the event right uh and obviously there are communities and little people and he lives in this bunker with this this group and it's very much best it's honestly his character is the the real life depiction of like hiccup from how to train your dragon oh, okay seriously his character is all near nigh identical in a lot of ways like this mm -hmm. film is like fallout the game yeah. meets how to train your dragon meets maybe a little bit of that like uh honestly a little bit of walking dead um okay. obviously not nearly as dark um, right. it's funny because um it's uh is it michael rook oh, yeah. who plays yeah. merle in walking dead and is he in and yondu he is in this oh, um nice. has a very small it's very clearly the ending is a massive we want a sequel to this film and i do uh, think okay. it actually deserves a sequel mm -hmm. um, very nice I was actually left, it's a hundred minutes, and I actually kind of wanted another 20 in there. Oh, there there were some things... You should have taken the 20 from the other film. Yeah. Because some of the caliber. things, particularly, <laughs> particularly the stuff with like Michael Rook and his character, and um, the, the, some things get rushed because it is a tight hundred. And it actually almost, yeah, it, I was sitting there and I'm like, I wouldn't have minded this being two hours because mm. the, the world was interesting to me. They took... A premise that was like, oh, that's kind of a cool premise. And it, it does have that fallout effect because that's what happens in Fallout when, right. like, the nukes hit, all of the animals mutate and become, they're giant cockroaches and they're a giant. Yeah. And it's the same, they've gone with that with this one. And it's cool because what they also do is they tie it in with, like, the real biological things. So these animals, they don't change, they don't become smarter. Right. They just become big, you know, they're up further up on yeah, the food chain. Bigger, they become yeah. predators rather than prey. And I think, so they, they keep to that sort of their true animal instincts. Yeah, that's it, cool. It is cool. Um, and his performance, like I said, he, he definitely has the hiccup, like fish out. He has a freezing problem. He freaks out. He's way more creative and nice over being a survivalist. Mm. So, um, his character and it's a very likable performance by him and and the ending does definitely lead to we are going to have a sequel because of certain things that transpire and 
I'm open to. I would like to see a sequel for this film. So that was that was that was my the biggest pleasant surprise of the nice. week. Nice. Yeah, I wasn't expecting too much out of it, but people like it. it's got a decent score, and you're a big fan of it. So maybe I'll go watch it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh no. We're gonna follow <laughs> it up with. A film that I didn't have high hopes for, but not only was I reinforced with my lack of high hopes, I was actually let down quite. Oh my goodness. I am going to straight out make a very hyperbolic statement here. Okay. Zack Snyder (laughs) is a teenager (laughs) in a 50-year-old's body, and he can't make films. He can't direct films. Mm. He... Needs to stop being given a camera and money. <laughs> and I'm Zeke, about to... Zeke's a spitting facts. <laughs> I like 300. But I okay. liked 300 as a 13-year-old. Right. I watched 300 as an adult. And I go, some of this is a bit juvenile. And I'm sorry, but even the works of Zack Snyder that everyone goes, oh, that's great. Watchmen's great. Watchmen's nearly three hours long. It's too long. It's too long-winded. And it does things like, oh, how good's the intro to uh, Watchmen? And it's like, I remember watching like an act. I'm like, this is a really good way of telling it. But he uses he uses times that are changing, and he loops the song twice because the opening sequence is six minutes long, and a times that are changing is a three minute song. It sounds <laughs> sounds it, like me and my wedding dude, job. I'm sorry when <laughs> you watch it. that, uh, you're like, this is a this is a professional film. Could you not hire someone to do like the strumming melody? For like bridges between like the verses, right. so it goes, it becomes it a six-minute version song. Mm. No, instead he chooses. Gets halfway through his sequence, he goes, "Ah, oh, crap! We still got three minutes of intros. Let's just loop the song again." It just, <laughs> it actually is really lazy. And so rich. what? That's for Watchmen. That's for Watchmen. Okay, I've never it, seen. I've only seen. I'm looking at this now. I've only seen Batman v Superman, Justice League, and part of Man of Steel. Oh, I've seen Sucker Punch. But I just remember being really weirded out. Like, I was so confused it's juvenile. by that movie. I've seen all of those films. The, he's a teenage boy. <laughs> look at his face now. You call him a teenage boy. He's got that stern look. <laughs> he's a teenager. <laughs> like, look. He's just, like, it's like this film. Okay, we're going to dump into it. We'll, we'll, we'll just take it based on the merit of the individual. First off, so I know Dave. Dave okay, so Dave Batista is the, the lead. Okay. Okay, now... Some people like it, really like his Drax depiction. Some people actually don't like his Drax depiction. Dave Bautista, for the last year, has been making a lot of campaigns because he wants to follow in the Cena and the Rock steps, and he wants to be another wrestler who is hyper-successful as an actor, and he wants to be doing leads. He can't I... act. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no. He has to... I... 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 Cannot maybe recommend. maybe Ryan Johnson can direct him in Knives Out too. Maybe he'd do a good job. Is he in Knives Out? He's in Knives Out too. Yeah, but you know, but he's, here's the thing. Here's what I'm about to jump in. The the fact of the matter is, he's great as Drax with James under James Gunn's direction, and and James Gunn's probably going to do wonders with John Cena in that new Suicide Squad film. But you know what it is? It's they're playing to their strengths. They are hyper muscular men, mm. like too muscular. So the only roles they can play, they're limited in their scope. The reason why no one said Dwayne Johnson is an Oscar-winning actor. He's the highest grossing actor. Mm. He's in films that he knows that will make a lot of money. And what does he play? He plays the overbuff dude that often... Like, Jumanji perfectly casts him in that role. Mm. 
You know, Fast and Furious used him well. They're going to use John Cena in the F9 film. It's like, they're going to... And, and in that Suicide Squad, what's what's John Cena doing? He's basically playing his character that he was in wrestling, this hyper-fought-by-the-book kind of over-patriot guy, and everyone's taking the piss out of him for the film. That's going to be really funny, and we're going to like that performance. It's, he works... He works as Drax because Drax isn't the main character in Guardians. Mm. He's never the main focus, and nor should he be. He's the comic relief, you know? It's like, uh, he he only has so much range, and it really goes to show because he has to hold this film. He has an emotion, he has a romantic art, he has a father-daughter relationship. He's got to be the main guy who, for some reason, has a Medal of Honor, but flips burgers at a burger joint and his dream is to own a food truck but flipping burgers is the worst thing at this cafe owning a food truck like john favreau is apparently the coolest thing on the planet like i it's so jake is baffling how much goes into this film like i don't i can't i can't i haven't seen you animated like this in so long <laughs> I'm sitting there. It's two and a half hours. Yeah. And they do this. That's specifically the reason I haven't seen it yet. It's because I looked at the time life and I was like, nah. So this is the thing, right? Zombie outbreak. It's only in Las Vegas. Right. It happens in Las Vegas. They managed to quarantine it to. So it's a city of the dead situation. It's a Resident Evil city of the dead. And the whole premise is they want to. Um. They, they, they get offered by this outside businessman to rob the vault, get the money. So it's Ocean's Eleven meets a zombie apocalypse. Now, okay. look, honestly, it's actually a pretty fun premise. Mm. And I'm, like, actually pretty pro that. So what do they do? They assemble an Ocean's Eleven-esque team. So it very much has the Soderberg effect. And yeah, but I'm looking at the cast. I mean, this is not... Oh, sorry, that's the Love and Monsters cast, but um, where are we? Um, yeah, here we go. There's I mean, no the cast, star power. It, it doesn't have the star power of an Ocean's film. No. And I think that's a big pull with those ensemble, like the Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson. The reason why that's so successful is the, the, the people power in it too, as well as the writing. Yeah. What's well, the ensemble? Exactly. And it's a great recognizable ensemble, and they all play together really well. Exactly. Now, I actually would stand by this. I, I, walking out of this film, I was like, there is a good film in here, but it's not under Zack Snyder's, uh, Snyder's direction. Mm-hmm. Guy Ritchie could have pulled this film off. Interesting. I think someone like Guy Ritchie, or even Ryan Johnson, honestly, probably could have pulled something out. The premise is enough there. So what happens is uh, the, the zombies have like a hierarchy. Like they're not traditional just walking dead sort of. Mm. So they've actually got smarter zombies. Now, we've seen this in video games before, like the, the ones that are a little bit more hyper-intelligent. And apparently they, they have like this weird height, like this monarchy. Like there's a king zombie, this like mm. patient zero zombie who we find out in the latter parts of the film has a queen zombie who also he met somehow managed to get that zombie pregnant. So apparently because <laughs> the, the queen zombie gets killed and he rips out of her belly, this baby zombie. And it's like now, alive and making noises. And there stuff. is, they do cover their asses a little bit. And I say that because uh, at the start of the film, the, the patient zero truck, convoys going and that they've actually left area 51 so the debate is that are they zombies or are they aliens it could actually be that they are like aliens they're extraterrestrial right. so it they could set the it literally the first line of the log lines is following a zombie outbreak so their terminology is zombie yeah but I, who I, knows I, anymore but he just he just does things 
and he throws in stuff seemingly at random with no structure like Batista has this really good right-hand woman friend who only in her last two minutes of being alive confesses her love for him. And there's some unnecessary sacrifices. There's a terrible hook ending that the, the pandemic's not over. And, and uh, I'm not going to lie. This is where it gets... Oh, they need a boy, here we go. Scene. Here we go. So, the solution was, okay... Zombie outbreak's been confined to um, to Las Vegas, mm. and there is a timestamp. Like they have to get this money out because the U.S. government has decided to drop a nuke on Las Vegas to just. All right, that's a clock. Log- look. That's a logical. That's a logical situation. You right. can you quarantine a city. It's full of like uh, like the the city. They're gonna do it on Independence Day. So what, are the, what, is this, what does this heist team do? They go in there the day before. The countdown clock is at 24 hours. And like two, like, so they get to 26 hours. And then a news broadcast conveniently plays. They've decided to do it, not on Independence Day, because that would be tacky. We've decided to move this launch forward a full 24 hours. <laughs> and you just sit there and you're like, okay, they're about to commit like a serious, like some people would argue a war crime. And they just decided, yeah, we'll just bring it forward 20. It was the most plot contrived, like, <laughs> no logic. Just, oh, we need to put more of a stamp on this. And then, Jake, I, I kid you not, the last quote-unquote in real world 20 minutes. So right. we got to get out. There's 20 minutes before the nuke drops. It takes 50 minutes to get through that 20 minutes. <laughs> 50 minutes of movie time, <laughs> real time. Was it on slow motion? <laughs> no, but so much. They move from like three different buildings. And we go to, I just, my head, my, at this point, I literally am like, you just don't care anymore. You yeah. were just so caught up with your action and your gore paraphernalia. <laughs> you are a child. You are a child. <laughs> and I just, I you really. That, Zach? Zack Snyder. It is this film. I, I gave it a one and a half, and I'm yeah, the see, more I'm talking that. about it, the more I want to put that down to a one <laughs> because I just I'm vocalizing this because well, like, you're tied amongst my friends for the lowest. I have a friend who gave it one and a half, another friend who gave it two and a half, and then a couple of free star reviews. In here. I don't know where you're finding the three. Three to me <laughs> is there's some good in this. There's some worthwhile time. The best I can give you is there's kind of a cool law. Pre- like, I actually think there is a cool movie in this. Right. But it needed to be done by someone that actually had a brain. <laughs> um, someone that actually had a concept of time, plot structure, character development. And for Christ, it's like the fact of the matter is I can tell you right now. Let's take the Soderbergh Oceans model. That Oceans 11 team. Hmm. Each of them. You may not remember all of their names, but you remember their characters, their caricatures. Right, like, yeah. Their identity. We talk about, like, how great it is that he somehow manages to construct 11 unique personalities, and they all, like, you could probably name at least five or six off the top of your head. Right. Like, easily. This film has, like, you know, like, oh, signature, the weird the weird Swedish guy who has, like, a weird obsession with locks. Like, he's probably the only one that gets a little... <laughs> yeah, and, and the relationship... Oh, locks. man, the, the father-daughter relationship That's is amazing. just... It's just terrific. It's just so bad. 
It's just, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, I have all of these characters in the poster just staring at me. I feel like they should be staring at you instead. They're Some like, of the... They and look the, very the, happy. It's so funny. Like, there's, a, there's <laughs> very clearly, like, a corporate bodyguard character who's very obviously, like, so, like, bad. And all of the characters call him out immediately, like, you're up to no good. And then one of the girl, <laughs> girls is like, oh, you go ahead. And then he gets her killed. Everyone knows he gets her killed, but no one chooses to take any action on, on like dealing with the fact that he got clearly a member of the team very explicitly killed in front mm. of everyone. Oh. Yeah, well, you'll be interested to know this is the only film that, uh, the only feature film he is uh, shot just himself as well. Cinematography. No, I don't blame him. No one up. wants to shoot this film. <laughs> the funny thing is it kind of looks cool. Like, it still looks cool. Yeah. Like. If I was to give any props, and I think the only thing I could... I think it's the only thing I kind of gave him a pass on was... Yeah, it actually is shot pretty well. Like, it, it it's, a, it's a cool scenery. It's a cool post-apocalyptic look. The the whole kind of Vegas um, sort of premise. I, I like the premise. I, mm. I really think someone... If someone like Guy Ritchie or someone like Ryan Johnson actually got the ball on, on this, they could have workshopped this script so it's comprehensive entertaining and, and fun because it doesn't have to be serious but if you're going to it, it, you got to make me care i didn't care right. about any of them but so yeah. many of them have so many contrived just deaths for the sake of deaths and the last 20 the fact that the last 20 like there was no reason to push forward that nuke 24 hours there was enough danger and time sensitive pressure around them right well, you would think in that scenario they would just have, like, the end of the first act would be the situation when they go into Las Vegas and then something happens that prevents them from being able to leave within 24 hours. So now you've bought yourself 24 yeah. hours worth of film time or in-world time that to, they can do to character whatever. build, yeah. Yeah. And it would have been cool to see them try and survive a night in there. Like, because yeah. it adds another fear. It's this fear at night. What's it like at night? And And... No, no, no. They just bring it forward because apparently, and I quote, there, this is a quote from the film, the president thought it would be cool to have the nuke launch on Independence Day because it would be cool and explosions and be like fireworks. It sounds like something a, a recent president might have said or phrased. Yeah, I could tell it was totally, <laughs> totally like a Trump allegory. But like... Oh, goodness. You wouldn't be able to just move a nuke launch 24 hours earlier, just spontaneously. Yeah, like, just for the shits and gigs. It's, it's like... So, the, some poor government bus had like, so much paperwork to fill in just for that one-minute change. Like, Jake, people still evacuating. Like, it's like people with like little UN buses are like filing out, and they're like, let's just drop the nuke 24 hours earlier. <laughs> And you have Samuel Jackson there. Considering that's a stupid ass decision. Oh, it's just, I don't buy it. But no, it was. It will belong on Netflix. We won't talk about it in about a year. It might. It, honestly, it's my. If this was a film of the week, this would be stale popcorn material. Mm. I tell you that. Yeah, not. It's not quite that easy for us to pick a stale popcorn winner. I mean, we could add it in there if you want. After we could do the biggest instead. disappointment of twenty. I didn't. Instead of the hopes. French Dispatch, we can do this film. <laughs> I, just, like I really so don't think he can direct. Like, I I don't know if it's there. Like, or maybe I, because it's like. Uh, I, I feel the, like there's nothing 
inherently wrong with with a director focusing on creating like a teenage boy's fantasy trip in films like 300 or this or even the batman films where it's just silly but teenage kids might like it because it's rebellious and yeah, dark and just edgy. Knows, and maybe he knows what it was. But it sounds like these scripts are terrible in the first place. Yeah. So it, do, it just doesn't hold any weight. Maybe he's just accepted the only Oscars he'll ever pick up are probably visual effects Oscars. Mm. And he's just happy with that. I mean, he's probably he's got more money than me, so what can I... What that, do I that'd know? be kind of rude if he took the visual effects artist Oscars away from them. <laughs> a little wordplay there, everyone. All right. Well, that's all I've, I've watched. That was an intense rant. Uh, I mean, you should have started with the bad news first and <laughs> built towards monster, Love and Monsters. Love and Monsters is nice. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, I didn't have high hopes for either of them, so it's nice to walk out with one of them being a pleasant yeah. surprise. Well, I ended up watching the the Mitchells versus the Machines instead of Army of the Dead, so I think I made the right choice there. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. Fantastic film. All right, well, I'm a little torn in terms of this career update. I wrote this down. This was dependent on, I'll just say it, whether this news broke on Channel 7 over the past weekend, which it did not. It has not broke yet. Okay. So with that, I'm actually not even sure if I'm allowed to talk about it too much because of that. So let's, say, let's do it next week. Let's skip the career update. Sure. Unless you have something you want to mention. No. Nah. At all. Okay. I'm just working. <laughs> working. Working hard. Making working for the man. Working, making that. Monday. Oh, this last week sucked. I had to go into work today. Oh, really? I couldn't play. Yeah, just to make up my hours. That that is. I'll give a shout out. Give a shout out to my um employees at Cloud Imagery. That uh, I can do my hours whenever I see fit. So I can come in on a Sunday and make up any oh, days nice. I didn't show up. It's it's kind of the best. Well, I think so, it's time for good. us to move into our film of the week. Mm. But Jake, what one hour? Count down through the retro, count through through the decades retrospective <laughs> poll. Countdown through the decades hey, retrospective poll for the nineteen nineties. Uh, this week on the show, the winner is, and we will be watching or talking. Wait, why does my phrase usually go? This oh, this week, this week on, the, on show, the show we're watching. We are, it is we are watching. This is because we've already watched it. This week we're discussing. Sure. The, the, <laughs> 124 weeks. We're going to start breaking this down. We now, just Z. broke it down. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at the show. We're watching The Green Mile. are funny things you never know when they're going to happen you never know if they'll happen and you never know where but miracles do happen and when they happen in a place like this that's the most unbelievable miracle of all This is the story of a miracle that 
happened here, where I work. On the Green Mile. Paul, the head guard of a prison, meets an inmate, John, an African-American who is accused of murdering two girls. His life changes drastically when he discovers that John has a special gift. Mm, a special gift. This was like a like a magical... screenplay was and screenplay and directed by Frank Darabont. Ooh, what a lad! What a lad! So this is uh, not his first collaboration with a Stephen King property. Of course, he did the Shawshank Redemption several years earlier, and now did this film as well. And like we mentioned at the top of the show. Stephen King calls this the most faithful adaptation of any of his works. So that's high praise right there from the man himself. Although you could argue he doesn't have the greatest self-track record. He infamously doesn't like The Shining, which we also did. Episode 50. It's true. Um, but all that being said, we're not talking about what... Uh, Steve. I was going to say Steven Spielberg. <laughs> he probably likes this movie. Uh, despite what Stephen King reckons, this isn't about what he thinks of it. It's about what we think no. of the films. Either. This is and, true. And you haven't ever seen this before. No, I was just looking through Frank Darabont's... Uh, filmography. Filmography. I've mm. caught three of the films. Yes. I've caught all of his Stephen King adaptations. I've, mm. Well, most is of it, them. Is it just the two? Did he do others? Uh, the Mist. Ah, of course. Because I was going to say, if, if it was only two... When they asked him to do the Green Mile, do you want to know what he would have responded with? He would have said, roll on two! <laughs> and then he would have rolled camera two to make this film. Oh. That joke didn't land, did it? No. Someone's else, Actually, someone's laughing. That was a it? dark, dark joke, man. Oh. <laughs> people, people, people died. No, because he's saying roll, like, camera rolling. Oh. Camera rolling on two. <laughs> um, it doesn't make sense because he pulls a lever. He's not rolling anything. That's true. Roll yeah, on true. two, doesn't it? Like, pull Look, on two? So, Shawshank, <laughs> pretty widely regarded as one of the best films of all time. Mm. I think it sits in IMDb's top ten. I think it's... it's I in, think it's, like, number one or number two. Okay, and then I know it. it's up there, too, in Letterboxd, too. So, it, And it's a film that I've watched five or six times, and it's it's pretty great. Um, this film, I know, is, is held almost in the same level of regard um it's overwhelming response in that poll really indicated that um mm. how much people like this film um right. and i've had a lot of people constantly when i find out i haven't seen the green mile that it's like you need to watch that like mm. they normally get quite a provocative response out of it including from me yes <laughs> um, i liked it I liked it. I did. Okay. Didn't like it as much as Shawshank. Um, and I do think there are, there are parables. Um, this film's interesting. Because it, it, it's one of the most... Inter- like, from a Stephen King point of view, it's biblical parallels or, or it's, it's discussion on miracles is something that I haven't seen in most of the films that, you know, have been adapted from his mm. source material. I mean, you take The Mist, um, which was one of Darabont's follow-up films, and um, there's not a lot of... The, the, the biblical discussion, that's actually quite cynical. Um, compared to this, it's quite optimistic. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know if I would call it optimistic in this portrayal, but I know what you mean. 
Um, that that it is the they use the word miracle, yeah, which is inherently uh, sorry, in, inherently positive. But that will be a good conversation. I think okay. we're gonna have. But yeah, please continue, please. I mean, I I, I think the theology's there. I think um, it's a positive uh, depiction of of religion or, or religious power or this power of, of, of faith or divine intervention. Um, whereas in the mist, it's quite cynical and uh, it's often used as, as a person, a, a more traditionally cynical depiction of, of how theology is used to uh, ostracize and hurt other groups. Um, it's done in a more microcosm sense in the mist. Uh, and Shawshank has uh, definitely has elements there but it's it's way more grounded obviously in Shawshank it's more about the people and their relationships more than anything mm. um uh, i think this is an interesting film because it's v- quite folk like quite grounded to really just being predominantly in the, in that block, in that cell block, in A block. Yeah, about, I would say 75% of the film is all in that little hallway with the cells. Which isn't a tribute. I actually think Darabont's really good with working with ensemble groups because um, it's pretty strong in the mist. It's probably the weakest in the mist, but it's still strong. Um, and obviously Shawshank has a great you know, array of cast. You know, we always think about, you know, Tim Robbins and, and Morgan Freeman, but the, the, the supporting cast around them is, is just as strong. And mm. you would argue that that's even prevalent in this, you know, obviously Tom Hanks and... Uh, the cast is exceptional in this. Yeah, it's... Uh, Michael Clark Duncan, I just want to say it before we move on, his performance is probably one of my favourite uh, <clears throat> ever. And I'm not I'm not tearing up just the thought of it. I might have got a sore throat, but it's not COVID either. But... His performance is just so good, and, and I mean, it's what makes this film. It's so heartbreaking. But to your point, I mean, I lo- I think the cast in this is excellent. Yeah, I love it. I think it's yeah, it's a, it's a really strong um, cast when you think about it. Uh, it has some really amazing performances, even from more supplementary characters. Sam Rockwell's uh, he's amazing. While Bill yeah. is 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 quite. Um, quite extraordinary for very early days Sam Rockwell too like mm. someone who is probably not quite at his peak in terms of his you know his craft and his performative craft and um for someone who now is so synonymous with uh you know critically quite popular films uh, well i'm i'm trying to think of a film he did prior to this film that was... I feel like he might have been in a random, um, like, Coen Brothers film, but let's see. Earliest first. Oh, I'm scrolling a lot. He's in Welcome to Collingwood, which we did episode 15, mm-hmm. but that actually did come out after The Green Mile. Um, yeah, I'm looking... It's a bunch of random stuff. Lawn Dogs, Subway Stories. So, this might have been his first, like, massive break. He's also... I think he's got a little cameo in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think he's like a kid who talks to a police officer or something from from memory, um, but yeah, this is very early days for him, as far as I'm aware of. It's it's an interesting film. I I was actually I had a funny experience because I've got it on DVD, got mm. on a two disc. Um, so when I, I when I watched it, I watched the first part, and because it was split over the two discs. Oh wow! Okay, um, it's a three hour movie. 
And I was like, oh, at first I was like, I thought this movie was longer than what it was. And, um, cause the first disc was only an hour and 50 and I was like, I thought this movie was like two and a half, three hours. And so I get to the end of the first disc and I'm like, that's not the ending. Like, <laughs> where did it end? What was the ending of this um, one? With, uh, the second execution, Ooh, the death of, um, the dry sponge. Yep. <laughs> It's funny, I was telling you just before we started, I've seen a specific chunk of Act 2 from this film many, many times, more than the beginning and the ending. Um, but it always does end at the dry sponge. I always need to like take a minute from that. Um, but I, I do want to comment on something you said earlier about the realism and then its relation to religion in this film. Because if you look up the original book from, I think, 1966, I want to say, okay, and it's actually a serial book, so they broke the novel up into six chunks... And I've actually read part two, which I think it was the only one they had at the library. So I read part two of the Green Mile book, mm. um, which I loved. But they describe the book as magical realism, which essentially means like telling the story in a grounded, realistic approach with little elements of surrealism yeah. or like a magical presence. It's more a phenomenon, like an unexplained phenomenon. Like I don't think yeah. this is directly to... When I say religion, it doesn't mean that it's Christianity. Right. And that's why I use the, the terminology divine intervention. Um, well, they do refer to God many times in this film. Well, God's their only way of rationalizing. And I think that's where magical realism kind of plays into it. It's, it, it's inexplicably um, difficult to kind of pinpoint exactly the source of, of Joe's power, mm. John's, John's power. Um, John Coffey. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't even know it. Um so, you know, they, they can put it down to a divine intervention. But I, I think the, particularly the, the most important interaction is, is the one that John has with, uh, Ooh, I'm going to have to search this up. Um, I'm going to say it's Melinda. I'm going to say it's Patricia oh, class. Yeah, Melinda, Melinda. Yeah. Um, it's, which is the wardens, uh, or the, uh, the prison well, the wife, overseer. The wife that has cancer. Yeah. Or it's a cancer, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, something like that. Oh, it's a tumor. Tumor. Brain, sorry. Brain tumor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And she talks about them being in dreams and and sort of like seeing each other beyond a realm that they couldn't quite comprehend. Mm. And I think that that's the only real ground, well, rationale we're ever given to John Coffey's sort of where he gets this power from. And obviously, if we, you know, probably going to be jumping into spoilers here. Um, obviously, his you know, how he manages to, so spoiler alert, um, how he manages to pass that power over mm. to Paul, you know. And, and uh, Mr. Jingles as well. Yeah. Obviously given uh, Mr. Jingles' long lifespan. Yeah. Well, I think, so there's the main story, we do have a, it's not immediate rest, but we do have a bit of a jumping forward in time Titanic effect. We'll Titanic see. notebook. They were like, yeah, well, all Paul, running. Paul was an older man, and it, it, telling the story. Yeah. We've been told the story from the future, or from the present, I guess. Well, he's telling it to his um, friend, yes. Yeah. Um. So that that part of the story that he's telling takes place in 1935 during the Depression. He points out, which you know, at that time and that place in the world, like that's that is where Christianity and religion, uh, was that was the norm and so widely believed. So it makes sense that that's where the connotation comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, the way I view this film, it's essentially about the cycle of evil that the entire planet has. And John Coffey talks many times about 
just the daily suffering that he feels and how he's being channeled by other people and feeling their pain and that he wants to go, he wants to leave and, and be executed. And just that connotation of evil and good and really cutting that line in the middle, being like, this is good, this is evil, that is something that I totally do attribute as like a, a Christianity or Catholic thing or mode of thinking is that there is pure good and pure evil and mm. there's those incarnations are in this film and you could easily point at this character and be like, that's evil, that's evil and that's good. And you, I consider John Coffey is like an angel. And I do take the, the religious readings a bit more seriously watching this film as the characters do because you're right, that is what they associate it with. That, that's the only way that they can comprehend what's happening. Yeah, I, I definitely think he's a um, sort of a cosmic anchor. He's mm. probably the, someone who's an angelic figure would be a fair assessment. Yeah. Uh, I think I think he more serves as an equilibrium. Um, someone who kind of is trying to bring about a balance and and for reasons that he personally can't quite comprehend himself. He doesn't know why he does stuff. He says he sees evil in people, but, uh, you know, he doesn't know why he takes the affirmative action that he does. Mm. Um, but I would say an angel is probably the, probably the best because he's, he's obviously he's a good person. Yeah. Well, I was waiting for one of the characters to say, because I've seen this many times before, but rewatching it today... I was trying to move a specific... Do they ever refer to him as an angel? And Tom Hanks' poll does say... There's that line when he's about to get executed. He says, like, what am I going to tell God that I've sentenced one of his miracles to death? Like, he calls him a miracle. Which I think is very much... It, it's not the word angel, but it's the closest thing. So yeah. I'm going to stick with that comparison there. Um, but Pr- yeah, in terms of... heartbreaking scene. Yeah, oh God. This whole movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty intense. But no, look, I, I do love all the um, sort of the religious readings that came brought into this film because, yeah, that's how the characters, um, what's the word, explain it to themselves in a way. Well, that's how they, they create this understanding. I think some forward. of the, the strengths of the film, which I, I love the whole physical to emotional juxtaposition. This man, this towering behemoth of a man. Big friendly giant. Is so <laughs> hyper-emotional. Mm. Um, uh, and one of the first, uh, you know, interactions that Paul and the, the other members of the... The guards. The, the guards yeah. Yeah. interact with, with him is they think he's, you know, he's quite simple. He's a special needs. Mm. Um and they they just think well he probably like the first conception obviously is when Paul's reading the the report mm. he's reading, you know he, he's hearing the story like he's reading the story and we're getting the visuals of the of this story unfolding yeah. from the perspective of uh, these two murder girls father in particular mm. um, who was in Shawshank Redemption too um, ah very nice yeah uh, so. It's it's interesting because it's like obviously we're a little confused. I, I don't think the film ever positions us to believe that we should think John actually did this. I think it's very, if anything, it, the only kind of concept we get is that it could be the Lenny effect from Of Mice and Men. This mm. big simple man just didn't know his own strength and accidentally, you know, killed someone like in Of right. Mice and Men. And that's a that's a Frankenstein thing too. Yeah. Where, with the scene, it, I'm thinking of the book where it's obviously very serious, 
Mm. Um, where I think he either does or nearly drowns a little girl, like trying to play with her because the monster doesn't understand. And um, there's a funny scene. I can't remember if it's from the original 31 film where he just like chucks the girl into the ocean. And it's just, it's just, it's funny. Yeah. It's not meant to be funny, but I just love But, but it's, yeah, right. That's the effect you're talking about. I think about. that dissipates very quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we come to find, uh, we, f- we obviously, we, we find that, um, that's obviously not the case in the in the latter parts of the film, as mm. as he has this telepathic connection with with. I, I guess it's telepathic. Um, it's probably the only way of really yeah. describing. Well, I, he feels those same emotions, like he's hurt when others are hurt. And yeah, the pain. It's, it's some force. Pain. It's some force of juju or something. <laughs> um, we find out that you know while Bill is the one behind the murdering of these these two kids mm. um i can't quite remember why sam rockwell's character is in the in the same ward because he's not sentenced um, for that crime. They, yeah no it was something else he did i'm actually trying to remember now i think he held someone up or okay. they they explain it before they pick him up from the psych ward uh, but it, it's for a completely different charge so yeah. people generally don't ever find out that he no. was actually responsible for those two girls no because i think that there's an interesting uh they, I think they cover their own tracks with this because obviously Tom Hanks finds out before um, Coffee is is sentenced to yeah. die. Um, it's the interaction he has with Coffee's lawyer um, a bit earlier in the film that kind of explains that sort of rationale where it's like, oh well, they may appear nice now, but you know, uh, if you turn your back on them even for a second, it right, they the can dog reveal. analogy. Yeah, yeah, and we see that play out with Rockwell's character when we were introduced to him, where he. Playing, you know, he's he trying to. Pretends be... he's all loopy and drugged up, and yeah. then jumps him. <laughs> um, so obviously, it was interesting to. I think this film's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a tight three hour film, ironically. Oh yeah, um, it's, it's so watchable. It it like, kind of has the Shawshank it. effect where you don't realize you're sitting there for three hours. You just mm. get sweeped up in the in the world. We're almost like when you when I was watching it today in mind that it it came from a six parted novel, mm. you can kind of almost see the chapters. Like it's a it it's a film that sort of takes its time and there's not a lot of plot. Like not a lot actually really happens in the first couple of hours. It's a lot of just the day to day life and you know them trying to catch the mouse for probably like half an hour of screen time. Really, like it really lets these events draw out. Yeah, you can kind of see like the chunks you can almost see this broken up into like a tv series almost or a mini series yeah uh, but i do love i love the pacing of this film it, it runs so smoothly yeah it's a it's exactly yeah you hit the nail on the head there um what do you think of the music oh, i love the music music great and it's excellent yeah it's yeah. Cla- it's classic but like it it does what it needs to in terms of bringing the emotion out of you and yeah i think it's yeah, it's, a, it's a really strong film uh, i think it it's interesting, given the inevitability of, of Coffee's fate, um, how we still build a rapport up. I, I, I think one thing, if I was to draw away something, I think after the events that occur at the at the house of the over, you know, the overseer character, how there's no real uh sort of fallout or rev- resolution from that is a little um confusing i think there's you mean, one... the, you mean the barn scene when they cure melinda yes is that, yeah, okay 
when they cure yeah when they cure her from a tumor right yeah well the the big thing because obviously something happens with percy and percy ends up killing yeah Earl. like that that stuff couldn't have happened without the bomb because that's how john coffee gets like the evil inside him to transfer to percy so from a from like a plotting point you need that scene to lead into the next scene, but do you mean like fallout between the characters or? Well, I I just think that it's like, it's like uh, I'm just gonna quickly get up uh, the warden's name, uh, James Cromwell, who was warden Howmore's. Mm. Um, I think it just comes his interaction with Paul, where he basically just asks, "Does this have anything to do with what happened earlier?" And and Paul goes, "No." Mm. That's kind of the last we sort of see of of the warden really he doesn't play too much of a uh well i mean what role could he have from that uh, point? I, mean, I mean he's that... the one they refer to when when paul's wife says like oh are you able to talk them into getting john coffee off yeah yeah and he says no then she's like well then there's no point telling him about it if there's nothing you can do don't tell him about it yeah so it, 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 that's almost like the signifier of like he's point in the story sort of said because just, at that they point needed a, they needed a gregory peck character and they needed to <laughs> kill a mockingbird over it <laughs> well that's i mean that's the thing is like at that point you're right john coffee is he's got, he's got a death sentence and at that point it's the tragedy he's done this miracle i mean he's done several miracles but that's like the one yeah that really um that's the one that's the one that really speaks to everyone but at that point, it's like, what's well, too late? There's nothing you can do. And everyone else in the mile is gone. I love that we slowly lose people throughout and that there is no one left after John Coffey's gone. Mm-hmm. Just like the process of elimination. And I love that you said, even despite knowing that he's got a death sentence, we're still falling in love with the characters. And I get a sense with almost all of the um, inmates, mm-hmm. especially, is it Edward? Edward? Yes. Yeah, it's not Edward. It's Edward, who um, I love. I think he's a brilliant character, and I love I love how simple he is, and the, his cheery, simple nature with the, with Mister Jingles, and and that whole relationship he has. But he is a murder, well, a murderer. I think that's what he yeah. did. Yeah, well, he's on death row. Yeah, he's a horrible. He did a horrible thing, hmm. even though we love him as a as a person. And I, no, I mean that's what's shocking about the yeah, writing a, in this. It film. is a, definitely yeah. It's a strange um, sort of how we're you know and, and then we're positioned and and yeah on the other side of the bars is this 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 percy character mm. who is is pure uh you know evil yeah. pure uh uh you know he's, he's got powerful friends and he's consistent you know he does the thing with the dry sponge and uh severely mistreats them on multiple occasions mm. and then obviously kills them you know jingles at, at one point yeah it's uh, the jingles it's a, I, yeah. Uh, I think for me, uh, there's just something about Shawshank that it's it's such a journey. Mm. I mean, it's based it's set over nearly two decades, and and your you know the, the bargaining and reasoning between uh, the warden and, and Andy's character and the other the other characters and the whole institutionalized mindset it's just a it's a timeless masterpiece mm. this film is it's in the same boat i mean it's funny we bring up the titanics and the notebook sort of way of storytelling you know an old man recounting or an old woman recounting yeah uh, this, this this big event 1935 you know yeah. and it's funny because all those films came out in like two years of each other yeah so. it's interesting they felt the need at that time 
to do that, to have a contemporary setting to ease the audience into the historic setting. Yeah. Like, I don't know why... I mean, the import- there are mm. importance to all three of those movies for that reason. And I guess. This one, it's to show Jingles still being alive. That's and, true. And the fact that this there is there there's a miracle to uh you know forever living you know there's yeah. a part of him still alive but there's a part of him that thinks it's a punishment as well and that that is the punishment for sending in what i would call an angel to death row that's his punishment is that he lives for god knows how long forever yeah and so that that's a good point i don't know i don't i'm trying to remember titanic if there was any Real specific reason why well, we needed the, to start in the, the contemporary. Jewels. It's the whole jewels. They're looking for the jewels. Yeah, I know, but like, was that important to the relationship to the, the boat sinking and stuff? I don't think it was the like It was her letting go because she dies. She jumps. So I don't know. I haven't seen Titanic. Oh really? No. Oh, interesting. That that should have I'm been. Try- I'm trying to remember. I there's no purpose for that type. I don't remember there being much of a purpose. Yeah. Here you're right because we're establishing Paul as not man, and we learn how old he is and how old Mr. Jingles is, and and that's the purpose of that. And in Notebook, a big chunk of the story is the present day, so it, it, it's like that is earned. But I mean that's Titanic. I'm, we don't need to get into the Titanic yeah. opening scene or, or how it ends. But um. Did you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, there's a few things I wanted to talk about. Um, before we get off too much on the religious angle, I wanted to point out, I've had something really interesting with the, um, is it Melinda who, yes, Melinda, who almost goes through a bit of an exorcism. That is the scene, by the way, that you mentioned last week. That was the one scene you've seen of this film prior yes. to watching it. Um, and the reason I call it an exorcism is because like the scene prior with the husband explaining like, oh, she said all the, you know, she's saying all these horrible curse words. I didn't even know she knew coming out of her sweet mouth. I was like, that's such a reference to the exorcist, like so badly. Mm. And with all the religious connotation in this film, I was like, that is totally what's happening. <laughs> that is an exorcism right there that John Coffey's performing. So I wanted, I wanted to mention that because I thought it was, that was nice. Um, Dabs Greer, who plays Old Paul, was actually his final film. He's a very prolific um, Hollywood actor. I believe, and that was his final performance as old Tom Hanks. I just want a little shout-out because he really nailed Tom Hanks' mannerisms and speech Yeah, patterns. it was really good, eh? It was awesome. <laughs> I was like, that's really great. Not a bad sign-off. Yeah. No, exactly. Absolutely right. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess the last thing I want to hound on before we get into the highlight scenes is we talked a bit about Percy. We talked a bit about, um, what's his name? Wild Bill, Sam Rockwell. Yes, that that was those were the characters I was thinking in mind when I talked about um, the incarnations of evil, and I find it interesting that they have not only two, but that they're on different sides of the law. You have one on in on the inside of the bars and one mm-hmm. on the outside, and you have someone. Percy is an evil person. Absolutely. Now, is he a coward? Yes. Yes. Is he as insane, um, or psychopathic as Wild Bill? No. But that's still an incarnation of evil. The kind of guy who just like messes with everyone, has this huge ego, doesn't realize the ramifications of his actions where he doesn't help the guard. He just kind of watches and stuns silence or when he doesn't wet the sponge, like those kinds of things. Um, and I, I thought it was a nice little send off as well that he specifically ends up in the psych ward when yeah. he's making fun of, um, of Wild Bill. But yeah, I just, those two little little those two incarnations of evil i thought it was actually really clever how they sort of had them juxtaposed side by side um and then you have the guards who are generally nice i mean they're the ones who like they feed 
Mr. Jingles when they first see him. They don't try and step on him immediately. So you already get that juxtaposition there. So I just thought that was just nice, clever, clever storytelling. Great performance from Rocco, isn't it? Oh, he's incredible. Yeah, that was, that actually might have been one of the first Sam Rockwell performances I've ever seen. Because I mean, I, well, I I think I knew him from like not a bad good start. He's in. Is that him in Scooby Doo? Or no, that's um, that's um Chris from Family Guy, Seth Green. Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking of him. But I'm also thinking of Sam Rockwell from uh, Conviction and from Iron Man Two. So that was what I knew him for before seeing him in Green Mile. I was like, oh wow, like he's incredible. And then of course, free billboards and. Jojo Rabbit and all the things he went on to do. So good for him. <laughs> Moon. 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 Moon's exactly great. right. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, do you want to jump in at highlight scenes? Sure. Ezekiel, what was your highlight scene? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably got to be... I think that exorcism scene plays out near perfectly. Okay. Um, I think it gives us. I like that scene, and I, I actually think the scene where they're talking about, like probably, I'll stay away from the exorcisms here. I'll talk about uh, the the scene that Coffee and 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 Paul have when they're talking about his last meal. Okay, um, that's a good scene. It's a nice scene, and it it sort of talks it explores a bit of the theology and the pain that you know John's character is feeling, and. I think it really hits like, hits home, especially when it moves into the the day when he actually is executed. It, mm. It's it's sort of the moment where both of the characters are sort of starting to accept the inevitability of this this thing that they were you know, abstaining from, um, and it's just a really it, it really showcases some really strong acting performances from both of them mm. in that scene. So that's probably the one I'm going to go with. Yeah, very nice. They talk about um, meatloaf. Yeah. I was um, I it was actually a very similar meal to what the guy says when he's joking in the electric chair. I think that's yeah, that's what he's talking about, um, shitting on his hat or whatever. I love that guy, like the janitor yeah. guy is. Like, oh, I've done some bad shit. Walking the mile. I love that guy. Um, I kind of gravitate towards the scenes that are more exciting and kind of terrifying. So yeah, Melinda's exorcism, if you will. I love that scene as well. The Green Mile homicide, if you will, when, um. When Percy does kill Wild Bill, like that's such a great scene. It's got to be no, nothing beats the dry sponge scene, mm. and I've seen it so many times, and it's just it's horrific every time um, because it is a character that you you fall in love with who's just getting like burnt and just destroyed. His body is getting destroyed, um, and everything that you've hated about Percy is sort of culminated in that scene. But just the way it cuts back and forth, you know, with uh, Michael Clark Duncan, just like he's experiencing that same pain that his friend is experiencing and that's what we explain with the mouse getting that little electric shock that gives him infinite life seemingly uh, but then you have Wild Bill like jumping around oh he's cooking now he's cooking now it's just like there's something so exciting about all of mm. those elements going at once and actually I can't believe I haven't mentioned this yet to, to round off the whole circle of evil that I'm talking about where it, it is almost sort of a circle in that it's inevitable because you have these good souls, yes, like John Coffey and like and like um, you know Paul and the other guards and stuff, but like the people, the everyday people sitting watching these executions, and it's fair enough because they all seemingly have relationships with the people that are being executed. Yep, are sitting there with these like determined faces, like they are happy 
and and they're getting satisfaction from watching these people killed in yeah. front of them. There's you know it's a show and they're giving this the show and they there's so much hatred in them for what in John Coffey's case he didn't actually even do, but that hatred's coming out. Yeah, and it's like yeah, it's ugh, it's brilliant how it all kind of circles together. But the, for me, it's a dry sponge scene. It's excellent, excellent scene. No worries. Well, the Green Mile is currently out on I believe it is Netflix. It is on Netflix, Stan, and Binge. The works. And purchasable on Amazon Prime. And I think we both own it on DVD, DVD. Blu-ray. So, yep. very nice. Beautiful. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Bit of a lighter week this week, Zeke. Uh, coming to stand this week is Moonlight and The Big Sick. As well as coming to Prime this week, I believe. Prime is a little confusing, I found, because there is like things that you can purchase at a price mm-hmm. from Prime versus stuff that's free with the service. I'm, f- I'm pretty sure what I'm reading is the stuff that's free for service now. Uh, recently released films, Hope Gap, uh, Irresistible, and Kajillionaire. Absolutely, a thousand percent watch Kajillionaire if you can. It mm-hmm. is excellent. Uh, loved it. I loved it. Coming to binge this week is The Wolf of Wall Street, the first three scary movies, and Kill Bills Volume 1 and 2. That's very exciting. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week is uh, Raya, Raya, Raya and the Last Dragon, which now gets its full release to all subscribers, so no more premium price on that. You can watch it as long as you pay for the subscription. It also comes with the animated short film Us Again, so kind of like a Disney Pixar short mm-hmm. companion piece. Uh, also, The Cave, which is a documentary following a 30-year-old aspiring pediatrician as her and her team work tirelessly to save lives in the makeshift hospital underneath war-torn Syria, as well as National Geographic's The Story of God, which is narrated by Morgan Freeman. Nice. And coming to cinemas is uh, Mina Mata, I believe it's how it's pronounced, which comes to Hoyts and sees Johnny Depp, I'm glad he's still working, uh, play W. Eugene Smith, a wartime photographer who documents the devastating effect of mercury poisoning in a small Japanese village in 1971. If you go to Luna this week, you can visit the German Film Festival starting this Thursday, the 3rd of June, which is very exciting. And you can also catch the French comedy drama Bye Bye Morons, written and directed by Albert Dupontel. And it sees a seriously ill woman trying to find her long-lost child with the help of a man in the middle of a burnout and a blind archivist. Like, I guess, archivist. Archivist, yeah. Yeah, cool. So, interesting week, isn't it? Interesting uh, stuff. Pretty stacked week. Yeah. German film festival. That sounds cool. Well, it is time for us to move into our latest director's corner. Oh. We put up a poll, and it was one of our tightest polls ever. Yeah, ju- juxtaposed with the most bizarre poll last week. Yeah, so... But Jake, who won and what are we watching, and who's the director? Oh, my... <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy, pal. He's good, good cop, good cop, bad cop situation going on. <laughs> who's the director? Oh, I just want to know who... Who won the poll, all right? Yeah. I just want to okay. know that. Okay, sure. <laughs> so the poll, of course, um, was 28 to 27. Incredibly tight. So unfortunately, Raiders of the Lost Ark didn't win the poll. So surprised. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm surprised as well. I didn't that, expect. This... I didn't expect you. That's back-to-back weeks you've gotten up now. Yeah, I've got two now. 3-2. Very nice. So in well, that begs the question, Zeke, doesn't it? What is the film of the week? Well, next week on the show, we are watching Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three males, three females. 
They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzzer. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? Rick Deckard, an ex-policeman, becomes a special agent with a mission to exterminate a group of violent androids. And as he starts getting deeper into his mission, he begins to question his own identity. Um, bit of a Harrison Ford dual competition, wasn't it? It was, it was. I kind of liked that we put Harrison Ford against Harrison Ford. Yeah, I didn't realise until I saw the picture you designed. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, they're both Harrison Ford films. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is a Ridley Scott director's corner. Yeah, so I'm definitely going to try and catch both Blade Runner films again. Me too, because I've never seen 2047, Nine. 2049, 2049. So never seen it. but uh, yes, I will also try and catch uh, Alien, maybe. No, Aliens. I haven't seen Aliens, so I'm going to well, try. Well, that's a James Cameron, Cameron one, film. though. There yeah. we go. Jacques. Um, so Ridley Scott's got an interesting sort of... He kind of maybe dips in and dives out. Maybe I'll do Gladiator again. Oh, Gladiator yeah. or something. Let's see. Ridley Scott. There's no H in the word Scott, Jake. Producer of 93 films. Holy yeah, moly. he produces a lot. Well, he also directed The Martian, which I'm guessing we've both seen. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's see. Oh, and of course, he's done some other alien films. American Gangster, Robin Hood, Body of Lies. Actually, I know someone who worked on of these. Body of Lies. That's cool. No yeah, dramas. So a bunch of stuff we can well, look at. We'll have to do Sir Ridley Scott next week on the show. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Science Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with... Blade Runner. <laughs>